Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction Podcast number 12, the award-winning short story, The Cart Boy, read by the author. A lonely grocery store manager hires a seriously disabled boy to collect wheeled shopping carts and becomes involved in false accusations, unjust punishment, unexpected caring, and deeply felt loss. I'm Bill Coles, your host, so let's get started. The Cart Boy by William H. Coles Ah, this will never work out, Mr. Rich said, sitting behind his metal desk, thick arms crossed on his massive chest. On the wall were photos of him with his high school football team, with golf clubs and friends, on a family ski trip to Colorado, at the helm of a sloop with all six children and under full sail on Penobscot Bay, and a large print of him at the wheel of his vintage 50s two-seater red convertible. You aren't worth a damn but hiring anyway, he said to me. Even after 16 years as manager of his independent grocery store, I could never remember a compliment from Mr. Rich. He was a hard-line employer who thought the best management strategy was never being pleased with any employee. I'd learned to ignore him whenever possible. He'd just be a cart boy, I argued. What's with this disability shit, he said. He's got some spastic disorder. Well, I hope it's not offensive. I'd never seen the kid. My sister, a volunteer social worker, had counseled him after he dropped out of special ed school. Don't be a brute, she said. Give him a chance. She was condescending, as always, believing me responsible for my divorce after my wife went west with our children and disdainful of my reclusive social life over the past few years. It'll be good PR, she said. The next week we hired this kid, Marion Passman, whose mama, my sister confessed later, was about to send him with a one-way bus ticket to Arkansas to a father he'd never seen. Marion's job was to retrieve shopping carts from the checkout area and stack them front end to end near the main entrance. On his first day of work, I watched from my enclosed office that was raised up from the floor and with a big window so I could look out over the store. Marion walked with startling contortions his back arched like a strung bow, defying gravity as if he were in a perpetual backward fall. His almost useless right foot jerked up as if he'd stepped on a hot fire, then it slammed down like stomping on a roach, while his left foot pointed delicately forward like a ballerina's. To change direction, he thrashed with pinwheel movement, as if bouncing on a shaky high wire, left arm stiff with down-pointed fingers, his right bent and twisted. He's an eyesore, Mr. Rich said. He was sure Marion would scare customers to Summits, our competitor, where all the checkout girls wore tight sweaters and the stock boys looked like gym instructors. But most of our customers were fascinated, glancing back over their shoulders or peeking between the aisles to see Marion. Not one customer complained to me. In fact, customers used words like spunky and good worker. As if to prove my point, The next day I saw from my office perch an always friendly customer, a Ms. Booker, stare at Marion for a moment before walking up to him and complimenting him on his work. 
Marion Jerks quickened, and he gave a little spasm of a wave as Miss Booker walked away to come to my office before she checked out. He's got so much determination, she said. Well, he keeps those cards straight, I said. Delivery for you today, Miss Booker? Oh, that would be great. And please call me Celine. Celine lived in one of the many high-rise condos near the store. Rather than carry her groceries, she used the store's half-mile delivery service, a special service I'd thought of to try to keep customers from switching to summits. For six bucks, a bag boy would wheel groceries to a customer's door within 30 minutes of purchase. If the customer wasn't home yet, he left them with the concierge. It was all going smoothly until Yolanda, a cashier, said it made her nervous having to watch Marion squirm around. I ain't required to work around no retards, she said. I told Yolanda to do her job. Marion's a good worker, I said. Customers like him. Rat shit, she said. He's better than you, I said. I got a friend at Summits. Get me a real job. She went straight to Mr. Rich to quit. I knew there'd be trouble, Mr. Rich said. She was useless, I said. Couldn't tell broccoli from kiwis. I was sure Marion wasn't retarded. He just lacked education. After all, he was too busy trying to stay upright to have time to study. Mr. Rich wasn't convinced of Marion's worth, but made no decision to fire him. Just keep your eye on him. This ain't a charity operation. The next few days passed better than I could ever have expected. Marion grew into his job. He had a system where as soon as someone unloaded a cart, he would whisk it to the edge of checkout. He waited until he collected three or four carts before he took them to the front. He watched for people having trouble separating carts from a stack, too, and he'd stumble over and give a hand. Outside, Marion made swings through the parking lot like clockwork, clunking carts into a long train and pushing them up the concrete slope to the storefront to be brought back into service. After a month on the job, Marion was walking around with this can of three-in-one oil. I thought he'd taken it off the shelves, but we didn't carry it, and maintenance said they never used it. I watched from my perch. Marion was oiling the carts. It took him a while to get the oil can tip in place on the wheel, and then he squeezed. When he dribbled oil on the floor, he wiped it up with a paper towel that he kept in his pocket. "'Where'd you get that oil?' Mr. Rich asked Marion. "'I bringed it,' Marion said." I told Mr. Rich he ought to have a few more employees like that. I was pleased Marion was doing a lot better than Mr. Rich expected. But during the pre-dinner rush on a Friday, Mrs. Tanner slipped on a greasy spot and fell near the fresh grapefruit display. I helped her up. She was bruised, but nothing broken. I couldn't tell if she slipped on a Marion oil dribble or the wet puddle from a leak in the automatic vegetable spray pipe. But just in case... I took Marion aside, and I showed him how to put a cloth under where he wanted to oil so nothing would get on the floor. He understood right away, and from that time on, there was not one fall from a possible oil slick, and not one cart in the whole store wobbled or jerked. The store ran smoothly for a while. Marion fit in as best he could, and he was constantly on the move inside and outside the store. Because he dragged his right foot... He had a growing hole on the top front in the rubber part of the shoe. The sock was sticking out, the skin of his toe exposed. At the lunch break, I said, Hey, come on, Marion. And we marched out the front door together, walking three blocks toward the center of town. As we walked, people moved off the sidewalk, gawking at him, as if he had an infectious disease, and I wondered if he was used to it. 
whether it ever bothered him. It was hard to tell. Then we came to a crowd of teenagers who stopped and stared, refused to give way. Marion rambled out into the street to go around them. My God, he didn't have the right reflexes to dodge traffic, so I moved him back on the sidewalk as quickly as I could. I led Marion into the super-discount treat-your-toes shoe store. May I help you, sir? A salesboy said, turning, so he didn't have to look at Marion wiggling around. Yes, you may, I said. I want air high tops with the best tread. What size? The boy said. Marion didn't know his size. The salesboy tried to line up a metal foot measure on Marion, but Marion couldn't hold still. I think it's about a seven and a half, the salesboy said in an offhand way, trying to act as if this happened all the time. Uh, we got red, blue, black, silver, gray, and magenta, he said. What do you want? I asked Marion. Red, Marion stuttered. Red, I said, to be sure the shoe kid made no mistakes. We got the right shoe size after three tries. Marion was a seven. They looked great. As we walked back to the store, Marion glowed with pride. He couldn't smile well, but I could see it in his eyes. Pedestrians now stared in admiration as Marion's shoes propelled him forward. Slowly, over the next six weeks, Marion began spending more time in the store than at home, often working overtime without pay. One night he missed the last bus and was waiting outside my office door just before I went home. He wanted to spend the night in the storeroom. Well, I knew Mr. Rich wouldn't take on any kind of that in-store liability. I called for a cab and told Marion I would pay, but the dispatcher was swamped with a Red Sox game, so I decided it would be quicker and cheaper to take Marion home myself. I looked up Marion's address in the employee's file and checked the city map. I, I sorry, he stammered. Just point out your place when we get there, I said. Marion knew all the right turns, and we got to the projects just before ten. Marion opened the door to his apartment and whirly gigged his way in, knocking the door back against the wall, and I plunged into Marion's home right behind him. It was a two-room apartment with a bath and a half-kitchen, a public housing project left over from the fifties. The bedroom was just an extension of the floor space off to the right. On a double bed with an uncovered mattress, four pillows, all but one without cover slips, propped up Marion's mother. By the bedside was a wheelchair with a black leather folding seat and glinting bright chrome wheels rimmed in thick rubber tread. I saw Mom's muscular legs splayed out on the bed. They looked strong. What the hell? she said. I'm Harry Nugget, I said. He missed a boss, Marion chimed in with surprising clarity. Mom adjusted the half-buttoned man shirt covering her flat chest. Below she wore a sheer white slip grayed with use and ragged on the hem. I could see by the pubic shadow that it was all she had on, and she made no attempt to cover herself. With her right hand, she grabbed the remote control and cut off the television, catching an actor in mid-sentence. Moving off the bed with the quickness of a squirrel on a limb, she sat easily in the wheelchair, released the brake, and glided a few feet toward me. She stuck out her hand. I'm disabled. Can't breathe good. She gripped my hand with the strength of an oyster shucker. Excuse the mess. He knocks everything out of place. Marion probably slept next to the wall where there was a sofa with a pillow and a blanket and a heap on the floor. 
It was the only piece of furniture other than a small metal top table and two wooden kitchen chairs. The mixed smells of boiled cabbage, dried urine, and mildew hung in the air with the acrid tint of marijuana. You haven't got much room, I offered. Not for that bozo, she said, smiling and showing faintly yellow teeth with a space where the left upper incisor would have been. We applied for a two-bedroom and attic apartments, but the waiting list is in the thousands. Marion does a good job, I said. Well, that's lucky. His father was a no-good. Left me before he was born. Hasn't sent one nickel either. Well, Marion's turned out just fine, I said. Pain in the ass, most of the time, she mumbled. I said a few pleasantries and a good night. Marion's mother gushed sweetness and urged me to come back for coffee sometime. As I left, she dry coughed a few times. We were always busy in the summer months, but it wasn't a happy time. Even though sales soared, employees complained about the heat and customers' tempers flared. On Thursday, Mr. Rich came brashly into my office with Antonio Silva, the security guy from Ms. Celine Booker's apartment complex. Silva had a problem, Mr. Rich explained. Yesterday, Silva began, Miss Celine Booker unpacked her bags of groceries your store delivered. In the bottom of one sack, she found a mangled rose. I don't get it, I said. Shut up, Harry. Listen, Mr. Rich said. I thought it was trash at first, Silva continued. But Miss Booker thought it was a message. That's crazy, I said. I'm properly from the florist section. Got stuck in the bottom of a milk carton at checkout. But she had a card, too, in an envelope with no address and unsealed. Can I see it? I asked. Miss Booker is downright scared. She lives in a high-risk neighborhood. She's seeing stalkers, hearing noises, freaks out at the usual hang-up phone calls even more than usual. She's thinking she's going to be violated. She wants protection. Our delivery didn't do that, I said. Listen to him, Harry, Mr. Rich said. She suffered two attempted rapes within a half mile of the building in the last two years. I'd known Silva since high school. Maybe Miss Booker was scared, but I could tell he had the hots for her. Can I see the card? I asked again. On the front was a misshapen bird, drawn by a cartoonist, a cross between Big Bird and the Roadrunner, with wings and legs splayed out at impossible angles. Inside the card was a yellow, happy smile face that said, have a good day. We got that one, I said. It's not a good seller. Probably got in by accident. Hey, one of the cashiers might remember if it was purchased here, Silva said. Could you check? Mr. Rich said. Silva stared expectantly at Mr. Rich. Will 50 bucks an hour do? Mr. Rich added. I can take the afternoon off from the condo. It won't take long, Silva said. Silva loved this detective stuff from Ms. Booker. Throughout the afternoon, he interrogated each cashier as they took their breaks and even stayed on to talk to the evening shift. He watched baggers, followed a few deliveries, and concluded the contact with Miss Booker was not accidental. I did my own work. Bingo! I got it, Silva said to me in the office well after six. The cart boy bought the card. Well, he's not a rapist, I said. Silva wanted to set a sting operation, catch Marion in the act. What he really wanted was to prolong time with Miss Booker. We'll just talk to Marion, I said. Silva wasn't happy. If he denies it, we'll never know it was him. 
It's no big deal, I said. He's not dangerous. But Silva was like an ivory hunter after elephants. It's a big deal for Ms. Booker, he said. So I called Marion over the store intercom before Silva could think of a plan. Cart boy, front office, please. Marion jerked and flailed until he reached the creaky wooden steps with pipe railing that led to the door. Going up seemed three times harder than staying level, and he was panting when he entered the office. He maneuvered into a straight-backed wooden chair. I didn't introduce Silva. Yes, 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 sir, Marion sputtered. I held up the rose and the card. Marion trembled. Did you put these in Miss Booker's grocery bags? He pointed to the card. He nodded, unable to speak. Why did you do it? Silva said. She, she, she a nice lady, Marion said. He managed to say he didn't know about the rose. It was obvious he knew nothing. I asked Silva if he'd heard enough. I let Marion go back to work, and Silva made an appointment for him and me with Miss Booker for five o'clock the next day. Case solved, perp confronted, slime confessed, Silva summarized to Miss Booker on the phone. We'll talk some things over with a little lady about compensation, he said, smiling to me, after he hung up. The next day, Silver and I arrived at Selene Booker's apartment early. Marion, Selene said when I told her, the cart boy? I never knew his name. He has a crush on you, I said. I can't believe it, she said. You're an attractive woman, Silva said. But I only talked to him once. I didn't try to lead. Oh, no, Miss Booker, it was not your doing, I said immediately. He wanted to please you, and I'm sure he didn't want to attack you. I'm sure of that. Miss Booker thought for a moment. Of course not. He can barely walk straight. He couldn't harm me, she said. I hope you will accept my personal and the store's apologies, I said. Celine was very gracious, refusing to file a complaint. She was totally opposed to even the slightest reprimands. Silva frowned in disbelief. He wanted to jail Marion. Don't cause that boy grief, Celine said emphatically, looking at Silva. We'll treat him fairly, I said before Silva could answer. Silva said, You might ask the store for a tad of compensation. For your inconvenience. It hasn't been easy. Definitely not, Celine said. He'll never repeat, I said. I can personally guarantee that. You've had more than a modest inconvenience, Celine, Silva persisted. A threat, even. I can make it so there is no skin off the kid's nose. It doesn't seem right, Tony. I won't bother the boy. I know the owner, and it won't be no trouble for you at all. Only if the boy is not affected, Miss Booker said. It's justice, Silva smiled. Mr. Rich was already in his office when I arrived for work the next morning. Five thousand dollars I shell out because this cart boy's got his thing in a knot over some broad? She didn't want trouble. Christ, Harry, I got the release. I wrote the check. Silva said it would keep her quiet. You got to get rid of that kid. Marion's done nothing wrong, I said. It's Silva making trouble because he wants to bag Miss Booker. Look, Harry... We put out $5,000 and a promise that he wouldn't bother Miss Booker again. I can't take the chance he might screw up. What if anything happened to Miss Booker, cart boy or not? Who are they going to come looking for? Me and you. He's innocent, I said. You're too involved, Harry. 
You can't get close to employees, buying them shoes for Christ's sake. Ruins discipline, spreads resentment. Mr. Rich's face flushed. The little clusters of veins on each side of his nose were turning purple. Fire him. Tell him we don't tolerate weird stuff. I won't do it, I said. Okay, Harry. You won't do it? I'll do it. Mr. Rich got up and walked into the back of his office complex as I went back to my office. Cart boy, Mr. Rich called over the loudspeaker a few minutes later. Marion made his way to Mr. Rich's office. Without Marion, we were back to customers without carts when they entered the store and a tangle of carts near checkout. For an entire month, customers questioned Marion's whereabouts, citing how convenient he had made shopping. The bankers would take no responsibility to organize cart retrieval, and we were losing carts to homeless rag pickers because carts were left in the parking area too long. Even occasional customers could see the difference in our service. So I added up the cost of cart replacement, noting the total cost on lost carts was more than Marion's pay. Then I noted Marion's oiling of the carts extended their life, saving even more money. I placed the report on Mr. Rich's desk as proof of Marion's worth. Let me hire the kid back, I finally said to Mr. Rich. Hire someone else, Mr. Rich said. I've tried. The baggers think it's below their dignity. Even the homeless guys looking for day work say the pay is too low. After a few days of no more applicants, Mr. Rich finally agreed on a trial of having Marion back. I called the number Marion had someone fill out in his job application, but it had been disconnected and reassigned months ago. So on my way home that night, I decided to go by Marion's place. Within three minutes after I parked, Marion's mother opened the apartment door holding a blue-gray polyester coverlet over her chest and tucked under her armpits. Her legs and feet were uncovered from the knees down. She made no attempt to block my view. A man dressed only in his jockey shorts sat on the edge of the bed next to the wheelchair, a twist of smoke drifting upward from a cigarette in his right hand. He did not look up. Where's Marion, I asked. Basement, she said, and closed the door. The laundry room was just to the right as I stepped off the elevator. Marion sat straddling a metal folding chair, and staring at an open comic book on a long table for laying out clothes. None of the washers or dryers was running. He turned himself in the chair at the same time. Marion, what are you doing? I asked. Reading, he said with difficulty, pointing to the comic book. I got to stay here till nine o'clock. His head jerked upward to the wall clock. Well, I got good news. Mr. Rich says he wants you back. You can start tomorrow. Marion paused. Then he raised his shaking arm in a wobbly salute, influenced, I thought, by the military drawings in his comic book. Yes, Captain, he said. When I arrived at the store before dawn the next morning, Marion was waiting outside the store employee's entrance. It was good to see him back. We were soon moving customers more smoothly with Marion back. A week after he started, I left the store in mid-morning to buy an intercom. Mr. Rich wanted to be able to call me to his office without using the overhead speaker. As I was coming back, Marion was out front rounding up the carts. From a distance, I paused to admire how surprisingly efficient he was, seeing how difficult it was for him to walk in a straight line. He pushed a line of carts up the ramp to the store, and the front cart nudged a loose cart at the top. The cart started rolling slowly, oiled to frictionless perfection, down the ramp picking up speed. 
Marion anchored his line of carts by wedging them against the wall. The loose cart headed for Mr. Rich's antique red convertible. With a burst of energy, Marion gained on it. I imagined a two-inch dent in Mr. Rich's car door about waist-high on the driver's side. Marion put on even more speed, and more flailing, too. Mrs. O'Leary was still driving, although she was eighty-two. Her car was parked head-in near Mr. Rich's convertible. She put her foot on the brake, as was required in the new cars, to crank the motor and wrench the gear shift from park to reverse. She used two hands, twisting her body and reaching over the steering wheel. She pressed harder on the brake for leverage. Her foot slipped just as she went into gear, the flat of her heel full on the gas pedal. The car lurched back out of control. Marion was within ten feet of the cart when Mrs. O'Leary's car hit him, knocked him down, actually bumped over him like a car going over a speed bump, and then came to a halt against a concrete wall still dragging him underneath. The errant cart glanced off Mr. Rich's car at an angle, barely leaving a scratch. Marion was still gasping when I pulled him from beneath the engine block. Then unconscious, he lay still, a body without a twitch, gnarled up on the concrete, with little bleeding, just scrapes, an arm bone jutting through the skin, part of his scalp sheared off. I'd never seen him so peaceful, his eyes closed, his mouth relaxed, his lips in a faint curve that could have been his best shot ever at a smile. Someone else called for help. I sat beside him, touching his hand for comfort, even after he died. This story and more than 33 others can be enjoyed free online, as well as five novels at storyandliteraryfiction.com, a website dedicated to providing resources for fiction writers, resources that include essays, interviews, a blog, a newsletter, a workshop, a tutorial, and much, much more. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. This podcast is a production of StoryInLiteraryFiction.com.